Hello and welcome to Such Sights to See, a movie podcast about my journey through the world of cinema. I am your host, Patrick. You can find me on Letterboxd as Long Monkey, and you can find my fiction writing at proleary.com. For those new to the podcast, what I do is I talk about some of the interesting movies I've seen recently, and then I do a little dive into a category of film in order to like, try to expand my horizons a bit. I'll be having on special guests to pick a category that they love or are interested in, and I'll watch some movies from whatever that category is. Today, though, it's just me, and I'll be continuing my rundown of spooky October Halloween month movies that I've been watching, and I'll also do a little dive into 60s Japanese horror. But stay tuned for the end of the episode to hear about the guest plan for next time and what fun movie category he is bringing to the table for us to explore and discuss. Also, you might get another uncommon film recommendation today. Let's let's jump right into the movies that I've been watching. First up, I know I talked a lot about Hellraiser last time, but I watched Hellraiser 4, Hellraiser Bloodline from 1996. And you know it's good because it's directed by Alan Smithy. So um, this one expands the Hellraiser mythos just way too much. Believe it or not, it starts off in space in the 22nd century, where the scientist on a space station has come up with a way to destroy the puzzle box because he is descended from the original toy maker in the 1700s that had made the puzzle box. But what's interesting is that it flashes back to the 1700s and then back to the 90s and then into the future. So you kind of have at least a lot of different settings for this to take place. Unfortunately, again, it's more the same, just too much... um, too much world building for a simple story in Hellraiser 1 that didn't need much world building. I did like that it had Adam Scott from Parks and Rec in his first movie as a 17th century fop that tortures this woman and turns her into, her into a demon. Uh, the woman's played by Valentina Vargas, and I don't know her, but she was really good in the role, kind of everything you'd want from a you know sexy Hellraiser demon. So that was cool, but... It's Like I said last time, it's diminishing returns with the Hellraiser franchise. So I'm probably done with it for a while. After that, I watched Dead Heat from 1988. All right. Directed by Mark Goldblatt, starring Joe Piscopo and Treat Williams. This is a... looks great on paper. It's a buddy cop movie where the two cops are dealing with these uh, robberies are being done by reanimated corpses. So it's like a tongue-in-cheek horror comedy buddy cop mashup. It sounds great. It's not. Uh, it feels very, very rushed. It's only 86 minutes, and the character development is non-existent. The two heroes are introduced just as two quip-making uh, cops, like without any real backstory or anything. You don't really care about them. Joe Piscopo is making jokes that aren't that funny. Treat Williams is being the straight guy, which is just ends up kind of being boring. So I'm on two minds about this, because great concept and really great practical effects. There's one scene that I really like that t- took place in like this Chinese meat market, which I won't spoil, but at least watch it for that. Otherwise, you're not really getting... Uh, what you signed up for, unfortunately. After Dead Heat, 
I watched a slasher movie, Final Exam, 1981. So this is uh, directed by Jimmy Huston. It's only 90 minutes, and it's the quintessential slasher movie, really, besides Halloween. It's just a bunch of college students on the final days of the semester where there's only a few people left on campus, and a killer has wandered onto campus and is killing them one by one. There's literally no backstory for the killer. Just a guy who drives around in a van and then picks random victims and kills them. And he's completely uninteresting. He doesn't look interesting at all. He doesn't have any interesting motivations or interesting kills. The college students are fun, though. There's a couple good scenes between them, but it takes a long time for the horror stuff to come out. Um, it's mostly like just watching like a college comedy drama for a while. And it's, it's fine, but it's really uninspired and I don't really see why people like the uh, like this as much as they do. I found it middling at best. There's better slashers out there. So that was Final Exam. After Final Exam, I watched Constantine from 2005. Okay, this was the first good movie that I'm talking about uh, on this episode. Directed by Francis Lawrence. It's his first movie. And you know, starring everybody's beloved hero, Keanu Reeves, and an incredible cast, Rachel Weisz, Shia LaBeouf, Jamon Hansu, it's Tilda Swinton, Peter Stormare. It, it's a big, big-budget Hollywood supernatural action film, and it has a lot of CGI from 2005, but the CGI really, really holds up. It's used really well, and you don't notice that you're watching one of those dated cgi movies that i really hate from the early 2000s and i think it's because francis lawrence knew how to handle these supernatural supernatural elements the script doesn't dive too deep into the history of this world it kind of just drops you in and lets these really good set pieces develop and Keanu Reeves is really good at playing this like dry a-hole character. It's uh, a lot of fun, and it has a really fun ending that I won't spoil. But I can see why it has this like cult following, and how everyone wants a sequel, especially after seeing the after credits scene. Which you know, if that was the start of the sequel, I'd be I'd I'd love it because I'm a huge fan of uh, Shia LaBeouf in general. So. Good movie, Constantine. Check that one out. After Constantine, I watched Night of the Devils. 1972, Italian sort of witchcraft demon movie directed by Giorgio Ferroni. Uh, At 91 minutes, it kind of flies by. It's this story of a family who lives in this deep, dark forest. They're the only ones there. This is in modern times, well, at least in modern times in 1972. It starts off with a, a man who is um, found injured and brought to a mental institution because he has no memory of what happened, and he just is kind of freaking out about darkness and everything. And then you flash back to his story. He was driving through the countryside, had a accident with his car, and wound up with this family spending the weekend in the woods and what happens is there there's something deep and dark and terrible, some family secret out there that everyone is dealing with, and he uh, gets 
wrapped up in this story. Uh, the story was written by Tolstoy, believe it or not, and it kind of has that like folklore, folklore tone. It's it's pretty cool. I I did enjoy this one. It's a, a solid like supernatural zombie thrillery uh, movie. Night of Devils, 1972. Check that one out, too. All right. Next on the list, The Living Dead at Manchester Morgue, 1974, directed by Jorge Grau. It's a British film. Very British. It takes place in these beautiful British countrysides, and it's a story of this. these two travelers that kind of get thrown together in a meet-cute sort of situation, except... They are put into this position where they are the only ones that know that the dead are coming back to life and murdering people. Meanwhile, the cops don't believe it. Nobody believes it. And they start to become the main suspects of, of these murders. So they're dealing with being suspects and trying to stop the cause of the zombie uprising, which, no spoiler, is a uh, method like this radiation that the government is using to help destroy insects, to help the crops. So it's a fun little setup, fun little movie, and there's one line where some, the guy screams, the corpses, the corpses, and it's really, really funny. <laughs> so recommend that one. Um, also, the lead is really good. Let me check out his name because uh, I'd like to see more films with him. His name is Ray Lovelock. Let's see what he's been in. Uh, Fiddler on the Roof, apparently. So it's good for him. All right, check that out. Living Dead at Manchester Mork. Next on the list is Messiah of Evil, 1973, directed by Willard Hoyk and Gloria Katz. This is, these are the directors, believe it or not, that... Um, directed Howard the Duck. So it's a this weird little supernatural horror movie from the 70s uh, launched the careers of the, the directors of that, that glorious masterpiece. So this one is about a woman whose father is missing. So she goes to this really quaint, weird seaside town where he worked as an artist. He had an artist studio there. And she tried to, tries to figure out what happened to him and it's kind of told through this, has this narrative device where the letters that he sent to her are what's narrating the movie, and they get weirder and weirder. And the people in this town, everybody in this town is just weird and creepy, and something odd is going on. But the tone of the movie never seems to want to, to tell a story. It's all about atmosphere. It's all about weirdness. There are some great visuals. Unfortunately, the uh, print that I watched it on was Amazon Prime, and the print is uh, not very good at all because it does have some great visual elements I'd like to see in the theater or on the nice Blu-ray. But um, don't go into this for the story. There's not much. It does have this sense of dread that escalates, and then the ending is kind of fun and exciting. But until then, it's all about mood. So if that's the type of film you like, you might enjoy this one. It's got a really good reputation I was not as much a fan of it as a lot of people were. That's Messiah of Evil. After Messiah of Evil... Okay, this is going to be the first non-horror movie I'm going to talk about, but I had to watch it, even though it's October. It was the sequel to Borat, 
Borat subsequent movie film directed by Jason Walliner just came out this month on Amazon Prime only. So the first Borat I'm a huge fan of. I think it's sort of a once in a lifetime movie where you know they took this character and they did something with it that could never be done again. And that movie had kind of this like adventurous, let's see what happens quality. They're they're out there doing crazy things and and it's leading to all these really, really funny moments. I mean that the plastic bag of poo is probably the funniest thing I've seen on films ever. I love that so much. Anyway, so you know, you can't really replicate that experience. So this one, they managed to you know, make it work. They managed to take this character and make another movie in the same style. But this time it feels a lot more targeted. Like they're, they're specifically telling a story where the first one was kind of free-flowing and, you know, is episodic. This one is well-written. There's a story that develops about Borat and his daughter. His daughter, played by Maria Bakalova in a really great, uh, you know, debut-ish performance. She does a great job. She holds her own with uh, Sacha Baron Cohen. Anyway, it's um, has a lot of funny things. There's some controversy, of course, as there always is with uh, these type of movies. I won't comment on that without someone to bounce uh, a discussion off of, but I will say that I enjoyed what this movie had to say and the story that developed. And I think it's uh, worth your time, especially if you're a fan of the of the first one. It's definitely not as political as I thought it would be, although it does wear its politics on its sleeve. So keep that in mind. It's not going to be like this, this screed about um, tearing down the regime that I think a lot of people hope it's going to be. But... It definitely does a good job doing what it's trying to do. So, recommended. Borat, subsequent movie film. All right, back to horror. Chopping Mall, 1986. Directed by Jim Wynarski. So, Chopping Mall is a story of a high-tech security robots at this shopping mall, which go haywire and trap a bunch of characters inside the mall after hours, and they have sort of a fight to the death to try to escape. Um, Chopping Mall knows what it is. It's 77 minutes long. It is a schlocky, goofy, horror comedy, tongue-in-cheek all the way, trying not trying to be serious, there's a bunch of cameos at the beginning, which are a lot of fun, that set up, you know, kind of the tone of this. The tone is just like goofiness, really. Uh, the opening montage after the little uh, stinger at the beginning is just a montage of all these characters in the mall with this cool, you know, rock and roll soundtrack behind it. It's a lot of fun. It introduces all the characters, it introduces the time period and the setting, and it does so in a really fun, colorful way. But after that, it just becomes kind of rote about these, uh, you know, these teenagers in the mall having a party, and then they have to fight off these killer robots, which all look like, you know, Johnny Five, and don't move very fast at all, and really aren't 
that hard to escape if you would just stand still and not do anything crazy. But forget about that for now. It's a horror movie. We we will make allowances for dumb things that characters do. But, um, yeah, I enjoyed it. It was fun. It's not as good as I hoped it would be with a title like Chopping Mall and a tagline as famous as the tagline it has. Chopping Mall, where everything here costs an arm and a leg. So, you know, recommended for sure. It's a fun watch, but you're not going to, it's not going to, you know, change your world or anything like that. That's uh, Chopping Mall, Jim Wynarski. Okay, got one more before we do our dive. The last one, unfortunately, wasn't a great one. It's called The Body Beneath by Andy Milligan, 1970. So Andy Milligan, I don't really know much about him in general. I've seen a handful of his movies. And he strikes me as like this scrappy amateur filmmaker who has like really big ambitions and makes these movies that are always like reaching for those ambitions and never quite get there. You got these big period movies that are filmed in like his parents' house in Staten Island. And you can kind of tell they're not, it's not, you could definitely tell it's not a period house, but you know, it's charming. And there's some talent behind the camera at moments uh and it's you know you kind of root for the guy and i got suckered in to that aesthetic in his previous movies so wanted to check this one out it's one of his lesser known ones and it's you know it doesn't really have that that uh go-getter attitude that i was hoping it's stories about this um family of vampires during modern times again modern times in 1970 that uh are having issues with uh continuing the clan so they seek out these ans- these uh distant distant relatives of the clan and kind of use them to try to use them to expand the bloodline and get some new blood sometimes literally into the family um so from there it kind of just is a standard, really poorly made, low budget vampire movie with a little bit of a, like a sexploitation attitude thrown on top. And, you know, you can watch much better movies than this. But if you're an Andy Milligan completist, then, uh, you know, at least you won't turn it off halfway through. All right, so that is it for the movies I've watched recently, besides the ones that I'm going to talk about on my dive today. Today, the dive I'm doing is 60s Japanese horror. So I haven't seen much, uh, many movies from this segment of film, so that's why I wanted to kind of dive in a little bit. I think the only one I had seen is Goke, The Body Snatchers from Hell, which is this sci-fi vampire movie from 1968 that is um, colorful, uh, but kind of dry and goofy and has weird character motivation issues, but it does have these, uh, these, this makeup that I can only refer to as vagina heads on some of these, uh, monster characters, which was fun, but it didn't really leave a lasting impression. So I tried to hit some, uh, some various different ones for this dive. It started with Jigoku from 1960. Um, this is a film directed by Nobuo Nakagawa. And it's from Shintoho Studios, not Toho, 
This is a sort of a cheaper B-movie Pinku style um, studio that made a bunch of uh, movies of that ilk. And, but this one was supposed to be, you know, that same quality, but it turned out to be very critically acclaimed over the years. Uh, so much so that Criterion put out a disc, which is the one I watched. It's the story of a theology student who gets, who's in a hit and run accident. And from then on, he is basically cursed from what he has done and all these horrible things happen to him and all his loved ones, um, starting with the loss of his fiance and leading to the loss of many other people in his life. And the film is very surreal and very... Uh, it's hard to describe, but I, I guess it's hard to describe because while watching it, I felt it was kind of elusive to me even just by watching it. I, some things I could understand and and sort of grasp onto the depressing things that happened to him were definitely you know easy affecting and easy to uh, sympathize with but there are these segments where it jumps to sequences in purgatory and in hell and the purgatory stuff was weird and visually interesting but didn't quite work for me the ending when he actually gets to hell is crazy and a lot more in your face and wild. And I really like that part. So I think it's, uh, for its time, it was probably very groundbreaking. Of course, I can't speak to that, not having seen it when it came out as I'm a little jaded now as a movie goer, but I can see its inspirations. Um, and I think that it has a lot of value for somebody who is trying to sort of explore this genre and learn more about you know the different ways that things were done over time. It's also very interesting if you are also a theology student, because there's a lot of religious references and things like that that you'd probably find more interesting than I did. But that was Jigoku from 1960, Nobuo Nakagawa. After that, I started decided to go to Toho Studios to watch Matengo, directed by Ishiro Honda, who you may know is the director of Godzilla and about 50 other Godzilla movies. This one is also released under the title Attack of the Mushroom People. So you can kind of see how the director of Godzilla would have a hand in this one. And you're probably picturing these weird mushroom people attacking uh, humans, you know, throughout the movie, and you'd be half right. It is mainly a castaway film, kind of a, about a group of char- characters who have uh, their yacht has capsized, and they wind up on this weird island. And they're all they're all from different walks of life and have different attitudes, but the pressures of being castaways, not having a hope of rescue, and not having food, and having to search for food and for water, and dealing with the weather, and dealing with all the other weird things happening on this island. It's because of those pressures, the film kind of examines them more as in a cabin fever sort of way, 
where you're seeing all the relationships develop and be destroyed and you're seeing how people react to these situations and it's more introspective than you would think with a title like this but and that stuff was interesting it was a little too dour and slow and there are a lot of time jumps in the movie where one scene will end and then the next scene after some contact clues you realize is like seven weeks later and it feels very jarring because of that because you you don't really expect it to happen. But the ending, where the mushroom people finally arrive, is really, really like um, textured and cool, and the mushroom people are feel really, I don't know, they, you can, they, they look like mushroom people. They, the, the movie kind of makes you, uh, maybe, maybe it was because of a, uh, all the previous hour was building up to this, but when the when the climax happened, I was really, I was really into it. I really could feel like the the horror of what these people were experiencing, and the effects are really good, and it's shot really well, and the sets are amazing, and there's fog and atmosphere and all these cool things, and it ends on this uh, depressing sort of philosophical note that was pretty on the nose, but at least showed that the film had higher aspirations kind of like Godzilla is really about, you know, the, the atomic bomb, the radiation poisoning, things like that. This movie I think was kind of trying to ape a little bit of that sentiment as well uh, with less effective results, but still watch it for the, at least those last 15 minutes. That, the, that was wild and a lot of fun. The uh, third movie I watched and the last one I'll be talking about in my deep dive is Kwai Don by Masaki Kobayashi, 1964. Kwai Don is... Okay, I'm just going to come right on and say it. It was amazing. It really was. It was beautiful and intricate and really amazingly designed from the visuals to the sound, the sets, it was so deliberately made, time-consumingly made. You can just feel the production design. There are very few movies that make you appreciate how much effort went into them. And this is one. It is three hours long. It is a story of... It's four, sh- four shorter stories combined. Each one has to do. Each one is a Japanese ghost folk tale. I'm not sure if these were real folk tales or if they were made up for the movie. But the first one, just to set the scene, is about a um, a samurai who uh, is married to this uh, peasant woman and leaves her to pursue a better life with this noble woman and then regrets his decision, and then comes back years later to find uh, out what happened to his wife. And it's not good. And the story takes you know, 45 minutes to get to the climax. But those 45 minutes are full of dread and full of atmosphere. I mean, these... these I think there's a reason that he, they made these sets indoors on these huge studio lots so they can fill them with everything 
all the design choices that they wanted to um, to their exact specifications and then load it with all this fog and lights and color. And that deliberateness just makes that feeling of dread work. Um, Kobayashi was just an expert in this movie at making you feel just a little off and weird. So that first story kind of sets the tone. The second story about a woman, this like demon woman in the snow who comes across these two lost uh, lumberers and murders one but lets the younger one live on the, if he will promise not to tell anybody what happened there that night. And she's really creepy looking, and the sets, again, are amazing. I just can't keep talking about these sets. They're really great, and you have to watch it just because of that. I really wish I saw this in the theater. Anyway, um, and I guess you know what would happen at the end of that story when he's told not to tell anybody, but I won't go into it. Third one was the longest, and I have to say, even though it was as intricately designed as the others, it felt long. The story is simple. It about this blind uh, musician who is conscripted by these ghosts to tell the story of their demise and song. And because of, of that, he has basically beholden to them. And then he has, he has his, um, the people at the temple are going to try to help him escape their, their bond, and which leads to a very dramatic altercation at the end of the, story but getting to that altercation took a very long time this this segment was about an hour and 20 minutes and you know even though everything was so beautiful i found myself straying <laughs> my attention was straying um but the last story is uh again another folklore ghost tale about a samurai who sees this uh man in his cup of tea reflecting the cup of tea that isn't him and that leads to an altercation with this ghost when he rebukes uh when he rebukes it and that one's only you know 30 minutes but uh again as intricately designed as the others man i can't i can't underestimate how much time and care went into the production of this movie. At least that's what it feels like. And it was just great to see that. And I would love to see this on the theater. I plan on someday getting a Blu-ray just so I could, uh, you know, put it on in the background and just let that wash over me. Really, really interesting. That was quite on. Highly recommended. So that was my dive into 60s Japanese horror. I will say what I learned was that you know, this is probably a lesson I sh- that I should remind myself that I've learned because I've known it in the past. Each little genre, no matter how specific you want to get, has so many different types of movies in it. You can get the schlockiness of Attack of the Mushroom People. You can get the like the philosophical, bold, um, and dramatic storytelling of Jigoku. Or you can get the operatic you know, magnificence of quite on and they're all sixties Japanese horror. It's very interesting how there's so much to explore in movies and uh 
that's you know one reason why I love them. One of many. Okay, so as promised, it's time for this episode's uncommon film recommendation. Sticking in the horror genre, I'm going to recommend a movie called The House That Screened, a.k.a. La Residencia, a.k.a. The Finishing School, which is the title I first saw it under, directed by Narciso Ibanez Serrador from Spain in 1979. 1969, excuse me. This movie is a... It's about a boarding school in the countryside... This big, you know, magnificent manor house full of um, these young girls that are being killed by a mysterious stranger. It sounds like a slasher movie, but it's more about this like repressed sexuality amongst the girls and the, the um, teachers and this the teacher's son who is kind of wrapped up in all the relationships. And then there's a creepy. Um, you know, the creepy uh, handyman and then you got the the young sexy woodcutter who comes over and there's a lot going on but it kind of really builds up to this ending and it's just a lot of fun throughout so definitely recommended the house that screamed from 1969 all right next episode i will finally stray from horror movies and do a dive into my first guest topic the guest will be my good friend for many years fellow podcast and content creator Eric Nilsson. And the topic he has chosen to bring to the table will be, uh, how can I describe this, Um, modern Hollywood elderly action stars. These are those those post-taken movies, uh, popularized by, of course, Liam Neeson, where an old movie star uh, just turns into an action hero and kicks a lot of butt. I'm sure we'll have a fun time discussing movies like that and figuring out who else besides Liam Neeson falls into this category. So that's it for this episode, folks. Again, my name is Patrick, and you can follow along with my movie watching on Letterboxd under Long Monkey. And do check out my fiction writing at pr.oleary.com. Good night and sweet dreams. <laughs>